vaccines are often a victim of their own success because high vaccination rates means nothing's happening. And when nothing's happening, we often say, okay, well, why do we still need this? I don't need to do that anymore. And as soon as those rates drop, these diseases come back. We see that with polio, we see that with measles. So very powerful tools at an individual and a population level. We've seen the strain, as you know, on our healthcare system. If it's preventable, let's make it preventable. Let's use these tools at our disposal. Hello and welcome to Friendly Pharmacy 5. Today we are speaking with Ajit Johal. Ajit Johal is a pharmacist. He is also the clinical director of Immunize.io and he is an assistant professor at the University of British Columbia. Ajit, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Lindsay. I've been such a big fan of what you've done with Pharmacy 5 since 2020. So like we talked about earlier in the pre-show, I feel like I've really made it now that I'm a guest on your show. So again, thank you so much for having me. Not at all. And the respect is completely mutual, Ajit. Just for our audience to be able to get to know you a little bit, can you tell us how you became a pharmacist and how you got interested in the area of vaccinations? Yeah, so it's good. We're starting with these existential questions. Why did I become a pharmacist? So it's kind of like with anybody who's kind of had an interest in science and healthcare, but not a clear sort of um, idea of which role you want to play in the healthcare space. So I was fortunate. My dad is a pharmacist. So I can't say that I had a good idea of what it's like. I think I worked in the pharmacy for two weeks when I was 15 and I absolutely hated it. So that definitely wasn't uh, a reason why I went into pharmacy, but I just found that it was definitely something that was aligned with what I wanted to do and the role I wanted to play in the healthcare space. That's kind of the direction I went into, did my undergrad and then applied to pharmacy. I always say I went to the best pharmacy school in Canada and that is the University of Toronto, <laughs> much to the chagrin of uh, the students at UBC. But I was really fortunate to get in at U of T. Not so much, I think all pharmacy schools are great and they produce excellent pharmacists, but even around the world for sure. But I think it allowed me to live in Toronto for a bit. And I think what that allows you to do is kind of live independently and kind of grow as a person. So I was fortunate for that. After graduation, as mentioned, my dad's a pharmacist. And it was funny. Initially, the plan was for me to work in his pharmacies. And then at some point along the way, closer to graduation, he said, yeah, we don't have room for you uh, because we hired someone else. And then he acquired another store and got really busy. And he said, okay, yeah, you can work for us. So can't say the job was a handout. And when I first started, I think the big thing that, again, no one really knows what pharmacy is like. And I'm sure this resonates with you as, as, as a student and then as a practicing pharmacist until you actually work for a few weeks as a practicing pharmacist. It's not the same as rotation and things like that. And what I found is for me personally, I felt, I felt that I wanted to do more than dispensing. I, I, when I started in the dispensary, it was, okay, I, I feel like I have this fresh knowledge, this fresh training. And I also had the privilege of working in a family business. So I can kind of say to the owner who is my dad and say, you know what, I kind of want to do something different. And I feel like your organization needs innovation. So I'm going to go do this. And if it doesn't work, then we'll talk. So I don't think that's quite possible in a lot of environments. But as you know, that's changing. We see a lot of new grads who are really being looked at by owners, senior owners like my dad, for example, to really innovate. So 
fortunately for me in British Columbia, so I graduated oh, almost 12 years ago, so it's been a while. And at that time, we were just off the heels of the H1N1 pandemic. And with that, there was two important things. One is actually three important things if you want to get into immunizations, especially in BC. The first is pharmacists were authorized to administer vaccinations. So that was a huge shift. You could actually give vaccines. But BC did something a little bit differently than other provinces, which I think is often overlooked, but incredibly progressive, is the second thing is all vaccines are scheduled to in this province. And that means as a pharmacist, you can dispense and administer any guideline-based vaccination. And that could be national or international guidelines. So you have a lot of antigens at your disposal, a lot of patients that you can screen and identify being at risk. You can even do travel medicine as well. So there's a great scope for pharmacists immediately when they graduate and when they practice here in BC. And the third is we are plugged into routine immunizations. So we actually give publicly funded vaccines like measles, mumps, rubella, tetanus, diphtheria, publicly funded HPV and catch-up programs. So there's a great opportunity even back in 2011, 2012, when I graduated to give a lot of vaccines. And to be honest, at my dad's pharmacy, they were not, you know how many vaccines they were giving was zero. So there was a lot of growth. I ran our first influenza program the neighboring doctor's offices, the nurses were super thankful. They said, you know what? We just don't have time to do this anymore. We're going to offload it to you. I think we did about 500 flu vaccines that season. And there was just an opportunity. Anybody who got vaccinated, you know, we were looking at other routine immunization updates and it really kind of became a, a full-time practice. And that's kind of where I really got interested right off the bat. Yeah, and I do remember uh, H1N1 and it was a really crazy time for healthcare, for pharmacy. There was a lot going on. So for a young pharmacist to be involved at that time, that just must have been a really incredible time for you. So probably a lot of growth, but a lot of challenges as well. Thank you for sharing that. I've always been curious. Pharmacists, generally, we are generalists, right? We know a lot of things about a lot of things, but we don't necessarily specialize. Some of us do, right? So I've always been interested in how you got into the area of vaccinations. And I also wanted to mention that you have developed a course for healthcare professionals that we will be speaking about in our in a segment of this interview that will be on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So if you are a healthcare professional and you are listening to this interview and you would like to know about the courses that Ajit has developed, uh, head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and that full interview for healthcare professionals will be on those platforms. Ajit, I wanted to go into, you've developed uh, an organization called Immunize.io. And could you explain a little bit about what Immunize.io does and why did you decide to um, create an organization specifically for, I guess it's education about vaccinations? So yeah, the Immunize.io is a not-for-profit organization that was started by myself. My my younger brother was part of that initial start. And then of course, you know, my colleague pharmacist Mark Zhao, who's an active sort of participant in Immunize.io with me in developing education and raising awareness for vaccination. So this was actually Immunize.io was started before the pandemic, a few years before. And it was really inspired by this idea that was in the Harvard Business Journal called Social Impact. And social impact firms are kind of developing their mission statement to grow their work locally, but also have impact abroad. 
And for immunize.io, I was inspired by actually Tom's shoes. Uh, it's not as popular as it once was. I, I actually don't even own a pair of Tom's shoes, but I really like their mission statement where it's like, you buy one, a pair of shoes, and then somebody in a developing country gets a pair of shoes. So somebody who's doing business with Tom's shoes is actually helping somebody abroad who getting a pair of shoes. And I thought that idea is, is, is so powerful, but imagine how much more powerful it would be with immunizations. So if someone gets vaccinated, they're protecting themselves, they're protecting those around them. And if we could also donate for every vaccine that somebody gets here, one abroad, and that's sort of the way we could theoretically achieve our very lofty mission statement of taking our best shot at immunizing the world. So what we did is we were a immunization provider, and we still are for workplaces, and we do a lot of different vaccines obviously flu and COVID seasonally, but mostly recommended unfunded vaccines that workplaces either support with extended coverage or with targeted programs for shingles, HPV. And each year we tally up as many vaccines that we do. And obviously I lump in my pharmacy locations, how many they do. And we do a donation every year to developing countries to match how many vaccines we've done locally to support regions where they don't have access to vaccines. And when they do, it's it's a challenge to administer them. We've done three, I think three years of that. So we've done donations to Rotary to help end polio, donated vaccines there, and then UNICEF for COVID. And then this past year, we wanted to do something a bit differently. Instead of giving money to you know UNICEF to for them to, to do vaccines, we actually wanted to have a direct impact into vaccination programs. So this year, we donated this cold chain technology we use to run offsite clinics to Nigeria's public health to support their, they just started on in October 25th of this year, their first HPV vaccine for girls. It's the second leading cause of uh, death from cervical cancer for, for women in that country. And almost pretty much all um, cervical cancer is HPV related. So very big campaign. And we donated um some tools for them to, to use to reach hard to reach areas um, in the country. It's a very big country. They have a big cohort. So that's something we hope to do sooner. And I think Mark and myself, our, our big vision is to work with, you know, pharmacy schools like UBC and, and really get students involved in supporting the infrastructure of vaccination programs in developing countries. That is incredible. For those who maybe just want a little bit more clarification or understanding, there's been a little bit of confusion maybe even over the last couple of years over what exactly is a vaccine and how do vaccines work to protect us? There's even been the question of, well, maybe I should just, why is an infection, you know, not better than vaccination or why is vaccination better, right? Could you just give us a little bit of an, of a, an elementary understanding of the science behind vaccines? For basically, a basic understanding of a vaccine is we're basically presenting an antigen. So this is a target on a pathogen that can help you fight it off and mitigate its sort of effect on your body. So this antigen trains your immune system to better recognize path pathogens, infectious diseases. This could be viruses, this could be bacteria, this could even be toxins that are secreted by either one. And what it does is it trains your immune system so that when you do encounter this pathogen in the future, uh, your immune system is much better prepared to deal with it than when you encounter it without having that sort of training or, or presentation from the antigen. So basically, 
we want to be prepared. We want our immune system to, to respond in a way that's coordinated, that's efficient, and to minimize the damage these things can do to our body. Mm-hmm. And there are different types of vaccines. I know there are many different types as a pharmacist. Can you just go over a few of the, the main types that people may or may not be aware of? Yeah, so I think vaccines in general, from a pharmacist perspective, there's they come in two two main categories, and obviously within that, there's a variety of very technical things that make them different. But basically, there's live attenuated vaccines, and that basically takes a very weakened form of the pathogen that allows it to replicate a little bit in your body, not enough to make you sick, but enough to mount an immune response. And those are would, would example be the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, the chickenpox vaccine, the nasal spray, the flu nasal spray. I'm sure pharmacists have been giving a lot of those this time of year. And, and for travel, something like yellow fever vaccination. So live attenuated uh, works very well. However, it is contraindicated in, in some populations, like if you're immunocompromised or if you're pregnant, it's not ideal to present something. Even if it's very weak, we worry about their immune systems and we don't want to present that. Most vaccines, of course, are inactivated. So by inactivated, I always explain it to to patients that we're presenting a a picture of a piece of a virus so that the immune system recognizes that, it drives a good response. Hopefully it's banking that response. And then when it does encounter that in the future, it can make antibodies and, and help you fight that infection. And within that inactive vaccine categories, you know, we have things like vaccine-like uh, virus-like particles, VLPs, and then of course, mRNA, right? Where that's sort of a, uh, a different mechanism where instead of presenting the antigen or the protein, the body makes it itself. So we give the instructions for that protein, the body makes it, and then it makes antibodies to those proteins. So just an extra step there, which is shown to be quite effective in producing an immune response. So Basically, that's how the vaccines work. It's presenting an antigen in, in different ways to better train your immune system for future encounters. No, those are excellent explanations. Thank you for giving us an overview of that. And Ajit, over the past few years, the COVID-19 pandemic, we saw the very rapid production of these mRNA vaccines. And this was brand new to the public. I know that these were already had already been studied quite a bit, even for decades, right? Mm-hmm. But they just, they came onto the forefront in the pl- public sphere very quickly. And a lot of people mm-hmm. were and still are concerned about yeah. how can you produce a vaccine so quickly and ensure that this is safe? And so I know that's a huge question, but how do you feel about the the process that was involved in the production of these vaccines? And how can we know as a public audience that these mm-hmm. are in fact safe? Yeah, so I think the big thing is when you look at a vaccine versus other interventions, for example, medications or drugs, um, that of course we we see a lot of as pharmacists, new, new medications and even medications we counsel patients on, is vaccines, there's a very high safety standard. The bar is very high because they're given to healthy people. So if someone is sick uh, with an illness and we're treating them with a medication, obviously their baseline is not high, right? Somebody who's healthy, we want to make sure if we're giving them an intervention like a vaccine, we have to be very sure, like damn sure that whatever we're giving them has high benefit and very minimal risk because you know, they could actually live their life and not even encounter the infection in theory, right? Obviously, you know, with communicable disease, there's a high chance that they might get it and there's complications. 
So we want to make sure safety is, is so paramount with vaccinations because, like I said, it's given to healthy people. So there's a couple layers of, of vaccine safety checkpoints and vaccine trials. And it all starts with preclinical. Preclinical is, is, is where most vaccine candidates fail. And that's actually just in the lab. First, you need a target. You need some sort of, we call it an epitope, but it's sort of a target on a virus or a pathogen, or maybe it's a toxin it produces, where we want to say, you know what, we want to train the immune system to make antibodies against this. And then what does that look like? I mean, does this look like something else in our body? Does this look like, you know, can this potentially be a response that could be bad for us? So there's a lot that goes into preclinical. And I had the fortunate uh, privilege and opportunity to tour the Moderna uh, facility in Norwood, Boston last month at ID Week. And just the, there's an entire division dedicated to preclinical where people are screening candidates all the time. Um, you do a lot of work with AI in the in sort of the education space, but there's a lot of AI use to kind of um, identify future candidates and and looking at at the permutations and combinations on is this safe? And then of course there's testing in lab cells, so this doesn't even go into animals yet. And and, and that that was actually interesting. So once we get to animal testing, there's a lot of regulations behind that. And I know there's a lot of animal lovers out there. And we want to make sure animals are respected and that it's safe. Not a lot of animals are used in animal testing. It's becoming less and less. The animals are respected. A lot of the pharmaceutical companies have adoption programs for animals after, you know, they're not in the sort of testing cycle anymore. And the tests that they use are non-invasive. So they're not, you know, cutting them up and looking at their organs. They're using, you know, imaging studies. And typically animals, it starts with mice. And then with mice, if the, with COVID, for example, coronavirus, mice don't get COVID. We had to move to monkeys and monkeys are better models, especially with their B cells and T cells uh, with humans. And it's, it's just, it's, you know, 10 or 12 monkeys that you kind of see the, the, uh, the immune response and make sure that it's safe. And this is where, and then it goes to phase one, we get, you know, less than a hundred human volunteers. Phase two is is over a hundred, and then of course phase three, as you know, is thousands to detect um, adverse events. And then the the best thing about vaccines is it doesn't stop there because even as we go past phase three and we you know don't see any safety signals and and regulators approve it, if we give it to a lot of people, we might see something, and that's where we do very good post marketing surveillance. There's various databases. So Health Canada is monitoring adverse events. As healthcare providers, you and me, when we're giving vaccines, if someone reports an adverse event, we can plug that into that database. So that's extremely important. I encourage all providers giving vaccines if a patient reports an adverse event. Even if you think it's sort of typical, it's not something overly alarming, it's important to add to that data set because it really shows how safe vaccinations are and let people know that if they do have concerns, it is reported. And that's always being looked at and any sort of safety concerns that come up as soon as it gets into real world are also addressed. Fortunately, it's very rare. As soon as something makes it past even preclinical and all the way to phase three and into the real world, it's very unlikely. But we do see things. The example being, of course, uh, myocarditis, right? It's very specific population. So males 12 to 29 with high antigen boost doses on their second dose when it's less than eight weeks from their primary dose. So that's such a specific population, a specific dose, a specific time. So we're really on top of this kind of stuff. I would argue this is probably one of the safest things you can put 
in your body, which of course the benefits outweigh the risks because it's there's so much surveillance on it. And to your question about COVID, none of those steps were skipped. So there was no corners cut. All of those steps we take were all done. And of course, given it being a pandemic and the entire world is getting vaccinated, we have a ton of data. And I'm sure you've seen, you know, people like myself present these data sets. They're very, very boring. They're, they're very big data sets. So we, we have a clear picture of benefits of these vaccines and, and very minimal risk. And the reason why things were done quickly is a lot of that preclinical work, as you mentioned, was done for decades with mRNA vaccines, with the, the SARS sort of scare in 2003. So almost 20 years ago of, of building preclinical data, looking at candidates. But the big thing that drives things forward and faster is money, is investment. So the, the world was really um, collaborating. There was a lot of collaboration between pharmaceutical companies, governments, a, lot, a large delay moving between each phase of the trial is financial risk, right? I mean, companies really want to be sure that to go to the next phase of their trial, even if it's safe and even if it's effective, is there, you know, any sort of, is there any sort of risk in, in spending more money? And governments had committed to buying candidate doses. Doses were made so that they were ready to go while the testing was being done. And that that's unprecedented. That never is done for any other vaccine. It doesn't compromise safety, but it costs a lot of money and it's very efficient. Um, regulators were reviewing data in real time. Usually it's regulators, they take, they usually, um, there's usually a notice of compliance three, six months after you submit and they start hammering their comments through like a day before the NOC expires, right? But in this time, every single phase, and this is all phases lumped together, so it's really efficient. And then obviously manufacturing, making vials, distribution, that takes time. So all of that was kind of done very efficiently. Now, will it? Will this be the standard moving forward? Probably not because it was a crisis, but no steps were skipped. And even to this day, there's ongoing safety monitoring for bivalent doses, for the XBB monovalent. So it's always being looked at and it's it's quite a large it's probably it's the most studied vaccine of all time because of the technology we have available now and of course the large number of people who needed to be vaccinated and still need to be vaccinated Mm -hmm. Thank you very much for that explanation, because there was a lot going on during that time, right? And it's important to really remember that these these phases were not skipped, and there's still a lot going on in terms of just monitoring, right? And that always happens with vaccines. And any healthcare professional, even pharmacists, we can report any adverse reaction, even if, like you said, even if we don't really think, well, it's probably not, you know, maybe it wasn't associated, it doesn't matter. We report it anyway, it's very easy to do. Right. And it's something that that is or should be common practice. Right. Absolutely. We have to. That's how we contribute to public trust. Right. We have to listen, acknowledge concerns, and we have to contribute to that data set. Absolutely. It's really important to remember that. I have a few questions from the audience, Ajit. Do you have some time to answer a few questions for us? For sure. I'll I'll do my best. Okay. So we had a a few really good questions from the audience come in. And one of them was, are vaccines safe for for people with autoimmune conditions? This is a really good question because the, the question that often comes up is when you get a vaccine, can the immune response tip a certain threshold where it could actually trigger an autoimmune disease? And that's an answerable question that has proven not to be the case. And to be honest, the in talking about the way we study vaccines, we want to make sure that the immune response, so even in in phase one and phase two aspects of the trials, 
you want to figure out your dosing to get that balance. We want an immune response, but we don't want this sort of cytokine storm, which we most often see with diseases themselves. So when it comes to autoimmune diseases, vaccines do not cause autoimmune diseases. I would probably say that the diseases that they prevent certainly can. So the example you've heard me say, you know, a webinar that that you moderated and I did, you know, like two years ago is Guillain-Barre syndrome. You know, it's on the form and that's an autoimmune disease that attacks a neuromuscular junction and can cause paralysis. And for influenza vaccination, we, we use it as a screener. And every time, you know, the odd time someone says, yes, they've had Guillain-Barre syndrome, it's not from vaccination, it's from the disease. So I always tell pharmacists, you know, the important thing about that is influenza is actually protective because if it's a one in a million risk of influenza vaccine-induced Guillain-Barre, which is kind of, it's tough to tease out because the baseline risk of Guillain-Barre happening spontaneously is also one in a million. So it's hard to tease that out. But for influenza, it's 17 times more likely. So you're actually better off in protecting yourself from these autoimmune diseases by getting vaccinated. The second aspect to that is those with autoimmune diseases, because of the advancement in modern medicine, we have these, you know, jack kinase inhibitors and things like that. We want immunosuppression in those patients because their immune system is overactive and attacking some part of their body. So those medications are suppressive. It's more of a reason to vaccinate them ideally before they start those medications or when they're on those medications to make sure they're up to date on their vaccination. So very good question because it, it really highlights the impact of diseases in triggering autoimmune diseases, how safe vaccines are, and the fact that they're recommended for those with autoimmune diseases. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people do have autoimmune diseases. So I think that might be a question that would be on top of mind. So thank you to the viewer for, for asking that question. On the topic of influenza, Ajit, how long is the flu vaccine generally effective for? Is it better to get it later in the season? I know I've heard generally six months, but you're really up to date on all the literature. What can you tell us? Well, I guess what we know is that we should get an influenza vaccine every season. And the reason for that is it does wane and there are often updates to different circulating um, strains of influenza. So it's important to get every season. There isn't any preferential to say you should get it earlier or later. You should get it as soon as it's available. Um, and there's no recommendation to get, to get two doses in a single season. So I always tell uh, patients, you know, as soon as it's available and you're able to get vaccinated, do. And I think the United States, they have their flu vaccines available in September versus with us, it's typically later in mid to late October. It is durable for the entire season and the season typically lasts from October to about April in the Northern Hemisphere. In the Southern Hemisphere, it's year round. So here it, it's definitely one flu shot is protective for the season. We had a couple of questions about shingles as well. And so we do have a vaccine for shingles. And I know you've done some work with this as well, Ajit, because at least in British Columbia, this is not covered by our healthcare. Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, and we know that shingles can cause long-lasting neurologic problems, and it is something that is preventable, right, with vaccination. We had a question come in from a viewer who had chickenpox as a kid. They work actually with young children, so they think that they've probably been exposed to chickenpox, and they're just wondering, do they really need the shingles vaccine at this point? So my answer is yes, but I know you have a better answer. But I think the answer is, is, is yes, for sure. I mean, I can definitely go into a bit more of the nuances. I think shingles is a little bit different of a disease where it's unlike flu, COVID, RSV, pneumococcal. It's not 
respiratory. It's not communicable in that sense, but it does come from within you. That's the scary part is from a public health perspective, it's hard to really institute other measures besides vaccination to protect the individual against latent reactivation of a old chickenpox infection. To your point, somebody who's had chickenpox and even someone who's lived in an era before chickenpox vaccination, given how contagious it is, we can assume that they've been exposed even if they didn't um, develop symptoms. The virus is dormant in their dorsal root ganglion, which is sort of in their spinal cord. And then with age, stress, Everything that's inevitable in life, it reactivates and, and attacks the dermatomes, which is a segment of skin on one side of your body to cause a painful rash if you're lucky. And if you're really unlucky, it can go up into the head, into the eye, potentially to blindness. And, and like you said, Lindsay, post-hepatic neuralgia, you know, up to uh, 10, 20% of patients can actually suffer this complication. Even if you've been, if you are not, if you if you've been exposed to chickenpox you have a chance of getting shingles and each year of life past the age of 50, that risk goes up. And that's why the National Advisory Committee in 2018 strongly recommended that people who are over 50 should be vaccinated against shingles. Thank you for that answer. And then in regards to having multiple vaccines at the same time, what is the general recommendation on that? In pharmacy, we do a lot of vaccines at the same time. Sometimes it's not always what people really come in for, right? Mm -hmm. But there's always this concern that people say, oh, can my body really handle that? How do you respond to that? Well, your your immune system is is exposed to tens of thousands of antigens on a, on a day-to-day, hour-by-hour basis. So it, it's got a lot of repertoire. It's got a lot of capacity. So couple of immunizations, you know, even five or six immunizations is not going to overwhelm it or cause any issue. And to that co-administration of vaccinations is entirely acceptable. A lot of times pharmacists do want to see data of co-administration, not necessarily for safety, because that's really been kind of shown over and over again, that there's no safety concerns. Is there a reduced effectiveness? And uh, unfortunately, even if we do a study in 100 healthcare providers of flu and, and shingles, for example, um, even if there's a re- slight reduction in the co-administration group, that's just a correlative protection. So the way I look at it is like, it really depends on, on your patient and you. It's very context specific. So if I have individuals, first of all, I always say it's entirely acceptable. And even I've had vaccines co-administered on myself, which is always something I, I tell pharmacists is, is make sure you get all the vaccines that you're recommending if it's recommended for you. Um, it definitely helps conversations and in, in supporting patient hesitancy. If it's good enough for you and it's good enough for your family and your loved ones, it's definitely good enough for your patient. So with co-administration, if I'm not going to see somebody again, if they're traveling for like six months to Africa, then absolutely they're getting loaded up with vaccinations. For a lot of my patients who might be a bit more, I can tell them confidently, yes, co-administration is fine. If I know they're going to come back, and and being a pharmacist, you know this, is we have our regular patients and we know they're going to be back. We can work with them on that too. I just want to make sure that, you know, they get all the vaccines that that I've recommended and that they've agreed to that are important for their health. If they're still a little bit nervous about co-administration, we can definitely space out visits because shingles needs two doses, for example. So we can make like an immunization plan. We can time it when they're picking up their medications. So it's very flexible, but if you're really in a pinch and you know the patient's not going to come back, I would strongly recommend co-administering because even if you think there's a data set that might show reduced effectiveness, guess what that effectiveness is going to be if you don't vaccinate that patient and you never see them again and that's zero. 
Yeah. And often it's much more convenient for people to come in and they get Definitely. it done, right? And then they know two weeks out, they've already have that protection, right? They're protected sooner for sure. Yeah. Going back to the COVID-19 vaccines, there's a little bit of confusion because we do have a, a global audience. So someone was saying, well, why is the UK recommending and maybe some other countries recommending that we get the COVID-19 um, monovalent vaccine only for those who are 65 and older? But in the U.S. and Canada, it's being recommended for those who are six months and older. Can you explain a little bit of maybe the reasoning behind behind some of this or maybe why people might be a little bit confused about this? Oh, for sure. I think this is a very good question. And I think it definitely needs to be ad addressed on this episode. I think it, I, I definitely agree there is a risk stratification for COVID now. I think that, like we were mentioning earlier, the game has really changed. We have a highly vaccinated and naturally infected populations. Granted, there isn't any change in variants where they become excessively virulent or immunovasive. We're in, a, in this sort of endemic sort of dance with COVID-19. Our high-risk patients are still at high risk. So those 65 and older, those with chronic medical conditions, those immunosuppressed are certainly prioritized for vaccination. And all of the guidelines, ASIP and NASI, certainly stratify that risk and say this group is, is highly recommended. The reason for including everybody in the authorized age category, there's a couple reasons for that. The first one is transmission. And in the phase three trials for the COVID-19 vaccines, we measure vaccine effectiveness, but we don't measure vaccine effectiveness against transmission, which is VET. With real-world evidence, we have that opportunity. And like I said, with those data sets and that surveillance, we have an opportunity to, go, to do all kinds of analyses and studies. So there's a really good study out of Belgium, which is over a million people, that showed that those with a up-to-date vaccination, so vaccination in the past six months, had a less likely chance of transmitting virus to a household contact and, and getting them sick. So because we're seeing with the Omicron sublineage, it's becoming more immunovasive. By updating our vaccination status, we are better reducing our own viral load if we do get sick and therefore protecting those around us. The second is post-COVID condition. Because of the unpredictable nature of that post-infectious sequelae, there's a risk every time you're infected that things might go sideways. And by updating your vaccination, it reduces your risk of infection. With healthy people, we know that if they've gotten vaccinated and natural infection, which is most of them, um, a lot of them have gotten natural infection because they, they were not as good as follow, at following public health measures, um, their risk of getting severely ill is extremely low. To that point, now that their risk is extremely low, our bar for safety just got 10 times higher. We don't want to give something to somebody that is going to make them worse off than when they started. And to that point, the extensive safety data on bivalent vaccines has shown that this is incredibly safe. So with that additional benefit of transmission and post-COVID condition risk against the extreme safety data, that's why there's a recommendation for even young, healthy people to get vaccinated with the updated strain. It also helps from a programmatic perspective as well. I, I don't like turning away people for vaccination. I, I need to have a compelling reason to do so. And that really helps us as providers for those who, who want to get vaccinated to protect themselves, to protect those around them, there's a recommendation from that. I was even looking at the UK program, it kind of looks like our old flu program before it went universal, where it's, you know, we don't have universal flu, but it's so leaky that pretty much anyone who wants one can get one. I'm in taking a look at it, I don't live in the UK, but 
to me, that's what it looks like. So it's almost like a communication and language. So I think someone in the UK who's young and healthy and wants to get vaccinated, I'm pretty sure they can get vaccinated. And then the other point, which is really interesting, I want to add is, as you know, one of the biggest public health concerns, global health concerns, actually, is antimicrobial resistance. We are in very dangerous territory where we might actually end up back to the days before Alexander Fleming, when we didn't have penicillin, where routine infections are actually killing people because we don't have the drugs to treat it. In the year 2000, when Ontario went from a risk-based program to a universal program, vaccination rates increased and um, antibiotic prescriptions went down 60%. Even if people aren't getting uh, sick, symptomatic illness could potentially lead to unnecessary antibiotics and can contribute to resistance. So you can see there's a number of layers to consider. If we're going to really say, no, we don't want to vaccinate this population, there are consequences to that too. So I'm definitely in favor of what NASA has recommended. Now, will vaccination rates be as high in the young, healthy population as those over 65? Of course not. Am I okay with that? Absolutely. I would lo- the vaccination rates should definitely be higher for those at risk. But there's certainly a, uh, a compelling reason to continue to update vaccination at this time for everybody in the authorized age group. Mm-hmm. That's a great explanation. Thank you so much. And do you, have you seen the data on how long we think the effectiveness of this vaccine might last? I think it becomes a little bit murky because we are dealing with people who have also had infection, right? And there's also the question of, well, if I've had infection, how long am I protected? right? So that's two questions for you. (laughs) Yeah, no, for sure. I think you've answered the first one. I think that we know that with hybrid immunity, that sort of T-cell response is quite durable. And T-cells are incredibly important, especially in individuals who have have high T-cell counts, like younger, healthier people. For older adults, they don't have as many T-cells. It declines with age. So I think that the durability that we're seeing is quite strong because of that T-cell response. The one unknown is the variants of concern. And in terms of their immune evasiveness, you know, are they going to evade our immune, uh, vaccine-induced immunity and our natural immunity? Because it's two different things. When we do vaccine-induced immunity, it's presenting the antigen, like I said earlier in, in the episode, to the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, which is one particular epitope, a very important epitope target, because that's what drives pathogenesis. That's what drives, you know, binds to the cell. When we actually get the disease, we make antibodies to all sorts of stuff, right? Like the outer coating, all this stuff. So by combining the two together, it's quite a nice suite of immunity. So depending on how this change, that will often determine durability. But I think at this moment in time, we're, we're in a good place. I think by it's always good to keep your foot on the gas. And again, that is really bolstered by the safety we observe these vaccines. So if the intervention is incredibly safe, there's still a benefit to update your vaccination status. What this looks like in the summer, in the spring, you need a, a crystal ball for that. And if I had that, I'd probably be betting on sports, not on predicting vaccine uh, effectiveness. But I mean, I could see this just given where we are with flu. I mean, my sort of prediction, which could be wrong, we'll have to see how this ages, but is sort of the seasonal program like flu. I think from a programmatic perspective, it makes sense. Hopefully we'll settle into that pattern. Mm -hmm. And looking forward, looking ahead, Jeet, what 
What do we have to look forward to in terms of vaccine research? What is coming on the horizon? You have insight to things that we don't know about, but I know there is a lot going on behind the scenes as to other diseases that might be preventable through vaccination. What are you most excited about? Well, I think it's just the, it's, you know, we're in a golden age of of vaccination. You know, recently we've had a, a monoclonal antibody approved for infants in April for RSV. And we've also had a vaccine for older adults, RxV, approved in, in August. RSV, we've been dealing with for 60 years, and the only thing we have is like supportive care and, you know, nothing else. So we have vaccination there. mRNA technology lends itself to a lot of exciting possibilities, both in the infectious disease space with a variety of diseases, even latent infections, things like cytomegalovirus, which can be a huge huge issue for those who are immunocompromised. And then even things with herpes, you know, latent herpes, there's a lot of possibilities. And even beyond infectious disease in the oncology space with personalized cancer vaccines, you know, we really rely on our immune system to prevent cancers from manifesting. I think that is definitely a huge possibility. So the possibilities are endless. I think that side of things we're very well taken care of. We're going to have access to new technologies, new innovation in the next five years, I would even say. The thing we need to do better is access. I think we need to really look at um, funding more vaccines, especially for older adults. I think it's, we have to get with the times. In the 20th century, we saw a massive reduction in pediatric illnesses, things like diphtheria, hemophilus influenza B, very good pediatric programs. What's the consequence of that? Well, people are living longer. And if you look at today's older adult they're not slowing down. They are just as vital to the workforce, vital to society. And we're going to reach a time very soon that we're going to actually have more older adults than children. And what does that tell you? That means the burden of vaccine preventable diseases, like you said, the morbidity from things like shingles, pneumococcal is going to hit that population. And that's going to cause a lot of strain on our already strained healthcare system. So we have to do better. We have to fund these interventions for older adult patients. I think it's, it's, it's completely needed and it's something that we need to do. And then the other thing, of course, is education and improving health literacy. I think that um, we have to continue to have these conversations with our patients. We need to continue to provide education. People need to trust their providers. We need to continue to combat misinformation online, to redirect people back to the individuals like you and like me who practice in this space. And that's the efforts we need to continue. Because on the science side, that's very well taken care of. This is the work we need to do from a policy side and from a humanity side. So Ajit, you know, here in Canada, we take it for granted that all of these vaccines are just readily available to us. And I think we really forget that for the rest of the world, that's not necessarily the case. I know that vaccines are considered to be one of the biggest public health achievements. We we often forget that here. But also, could you explain to us a little bit about the, the economic and even the societal benefits of high vaccination rates? Definitely. I think the key is to have high vaccination rates and keep them high. And, you know, where where do we begin with this? I think at an individual level, the one thing that I always found so powerful about vaccinations is there is no intervention where you can roll up your sleeve, get a quick injection, and in 10 to 14 days, you're healthier than when you started. And as pharmacists, you know, we counsel patients on chronic disease management, medications, Patients need to adhere to these medications lifelong to their antihypertensives, their statins, 
you know, their diabetic medications to keep those things under control, diet and exercise, smoking cessation, lifelong interventions. We can never just say we're just going to exercise today and not do it consistently. So when you look at an intervention at your disposal, nothing's more powerful at both an individual level and at a societal level. And we've seen with high vaccination rates, even with with COVID-19, it's a lot, it's a different story than it was in 2020, isn't it? Where, you know, we basically have to stop seeing each other and shut things down because that's the only tool at our disposal. So now that we have high vaccination rates and high uh, natural immunity, and I do want to caveat the benefit of a naturally immune population is being vaccinated because you don't pay the price of natural infection. We talked about earlier in the segment why a vaccine is important, why it's important to present that antigen in a controlled way because the virus works in an uncontrolled way. And there's no better indicator of that than post-COVID condition and how bad individuals are suffering from, you know, it was initially called long COVID, now it's called post-COVID condition officially, during when nobody was vaccinated. It just shows that an unattenuated immune response to a virus can go very sideways. And we see that not just with COVID, but we see that with herpes zoster, we see that with pneumococcal. The more people that are vaccinated, it really helps prevent transmission. It protects our most vulnerable. We have people going through cancer treatment, people who are very vulnerable, you know, hematopoietic stem cell transplant patients have their entire immune system reset to zero. So for three to six months, they can't even get vaccinated because nothing will happen. So it's really important that everyone they have in contact with from any, if they, even if they go to the grocery store, if someone's vaccinated, it makes a big difference. You know, look at diseases like measles where we need very high vaccination rates and vaccines are often a victim of their own success because high vaccination rates means nothing's happening. And when nothing's happening, we often say, okay, well, why do we still need this? I don't need to do that anymore. And as soon as those rates drop, these diseases come back. We see that with polio, we see that with measles. So very powerful tools at an individual and a population level. We've seen the strain, as you know, on our healthcare system. You know, if it's preventable, let's make it preventable. Let's use these tools at our disposal. Absolutely. I completely agree. It was interesting the other day, my children were asking me about chicken pox and they've been vaccinated for chicken pox, so they've never had it. And I had it as a child and I actually had to explain to them what is chicken pox because to them it doesn't exist, right? Mm -hmm. Because they've not had it. So yeah, it's a good thing, but also we need to remember where we've come from, right? And remember the history of this. And remember that in some places in the world, like you mentioned, polio still is a serious concern, right? And Ajit, in closing this part of the interview, what would be your message to the public regarding just the importance of vaccination and the role that vaccination plays in the health of our community? Community. Do you have a message for the public? I think in general is don't be complacent about vaccine preventable diseases. I think the message I have for the general public is most Canadians are not, most adult Canadians are not up to date on their recommended vaccines. And almost 90% of them think they are. And the reason why they think they are is because nobody has recommended it. So never assume that all of your vaccines are up to date. Make that part of your health and wellness sort of mission. And, you know, if you want to be healthier, you want to live healthier, you want to maintain your independence, be, be critical of your vaccination records, make sure that you're up to date and ask the questions from your providers. We were talking earlier in the show that we want patient questions. I think that it's great. I mean, it's great if everyone accepted vaccinations. That's great. I think at the same time, 
it's normal to be skeptical. Um, it's normal to have questions. It's normal to read something and kind of say, well, is this true? House the questions. And that's where accessible and knowledgeable providers like pharmacists, like physicians, like nurses, we really want to play a bigger role in your health. And please do ask us these questions. Like, you know, I think when it comes to healthcare navigation, you often have to be your own advocate. Do advocate for your vaccination status. Add that in to what you seek when you go in for your annual checkup or when you see your pharmacist for a renewal of your medications uh, or a minor ailment is we, we want you to engage with us and we want you to bring these things up because we should be doing it as well. And I think that having that accountability um, for your own health certainly makes us accountable for your health as well. As healthcare professionals, we've seen the other side of this. We've seen people come in with terrible issues after having these infections like COVID-19, like shingles, and it really can do a lot of damage. And it's so hard for us to see this when we know that this likely could have been prevented through vaccination, right? And so that's why we get very passionate <laughs> when we speak about this. And we absolutely want to be able to answer these questions and excellent questions that people do have. No question is a bad question, right? And so just feel that you can access your healthcare professional, especially your pharmacist who's who's there, who's at the pharmacy. And and all pharmacists are knowledgeable in this area and they will always be able to take some time to, to answer these really important questions. Thank you so much, Ajit, for all the information you've shared with us. I know that all of us will walk away more knowledgeable for that. And again, if you are a healthcare professional and you want to know more about these courses that Ajit has developed, head on over to Spotify or Apple, and we will be talking more about the content and how Ajit has developed these courses. So you can head on over to those platforms for if you're a healthcare professional.